Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. Writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about how the internet can make it both easier and harder to find who really first said famous quotations. And we'll talk about why it's so tricky to figure out why a letter is silent in certain words. When the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations was first published in 1941, it all seemed so simple. It was taken for granted that a quotation was a familiar line from a great poet or a famous figure in history, and the source could easily be found in standard literary works or history books. Those early compilers of quotations didn't think of fake facts in the internet. Fake facts, or perhaps more accurately, misunderstandings, have been around in the world of quotations for a long time. Often, when people see a line they like, they simply copy it and repeat it. Take, for instance, At the touch of love, everyone becomes a poet. If, at the time of reading, the words were attributed to the Greek philosopher Plato, this would be repeated too. But in fact, it was not Plato who originally said it. Although it's found in his work, The Symposium, he was explicitly quoting the playwright Euripides. Sometimes it's even possible to spot the very point at which such mistakes occur. The time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time, is often attributed to the mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell, but actually first occurs as an editorial comment by the Canadian writer Lawrence J. Peter on Russell's line, the thing that I should wish to obtain from money would be leisure with security. Clearly, the aside has taken on more life than the original. On the same page, Peter adds to Aristotle's the end of labor is to gain leisure with so that you can drink coffee on your own time. But somehow no one has attributed an enthusiasm for coffee to Aristotle. More often, the transition remains unclear. More than 20 years ago, we kept coming across a rather long but very apt quotation, always linked to the Roman satirist Petronius. It goes like this. We trained hard, but it seemed that every time we were beginning to form up into teams, we would be reorganized. I was to learn later in life that we tend to meet any new situation by reorganizing— and a wonderful method it can be for creating the illusion of progress while producing confusion, inefficiency, and demoralization. Given that only a limited range of writing by Petronius has survived, it was relatively easy to establish that this wasn't included, so we attributed it to the very prolific author, Anonymous, as a modern saying. A few years ago, the origin was finally traced to a passage in a short story about the war in Burma by Charlton Ogburn, Jr., 
published in the magazine Harper's in 1957. How it became attached to Petronius is a mystery we'd love to solve. One fruitful source of confusion is film. A favorite quote from the 2001 film The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, is this, Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Spoken by Galadriel, this line does not appear in the book, and the credit should really go to the screenwriters, not the author J.R.R. Tolkien. The idea does occur in a speech elsewhere in the book by another character, Elrond, but the wording is completely different. Likewise, we read to know that we're not alone is almost universally attributed to C.S. Lewis. However, this isn't something that Lewis himself said, but a line given to his character in the film Shadowlands, and the credit for it should really be given to the screenwriter, William Nicholson. Clearly, misattributions have been arising ever since people started quoting each other, but the existence of the internet has greatly expanded and accelerated the process. In the past, an attribution was only likely to become widespread if it appeared in print, and this limited the possibilities. Today, it only takes one careless tweet or blog, and repetition on a huge scale sets in. For example, and when it rains on your parade, look up rather than down, is a quotation widely attributed to G.K. Chesterton. But the Oxford English Dictionary has not found the phrase to rain on a person's parade before Bob Merrill wrote the song for the musical Funny Girl in 1964. G.K. Chesterton died in 1936, and there's no sign of this saying before the 21st century. It's highly unlikely, not to say impossible, that Chesterton ever wrote this. But while it propagates errors, the internet is also invaluable in tracing quotations, particularly with the advent of full-text searching. In the early 1990s, our researcher looked diligently in the voluminous writings of Thomas Jefferson for this quotation. Nothing gives one person so great advantage over another as to remain always cool and unruffled under all circumstances. Turning page after page, he failed to find it, but years later, with an online text search, it was immediately traced to the right letter. So unsurprisingly, the internet both helps and hinders the seekers of accuracy in quotations. It can be a great resource, as long as we remember with John Dryden, nor is the people's judgment always true. The most may err as grossly as the few. And perhaps we should give the last word to the novelist Dan Brown. Google is not a synonym for research. That segment was written by Susan Ratcliffe. Susan is an associate editor for Oxford Quotations Dictionaries. Her publications include Oxford Essential Quotations, The Little Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, and The Oxford Treasury of Sayings and Quotations. It originally appeared on the OUP blog. A listener named Edwin called in with this question. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Edwin from sunny Florida. My 11-year-old daughter asked a question the other day that I thought was perfect for you to answer. She asked, at the beginning of words like scent and science, which letter is actually the silent letter? I want to say it's the letter C, but I know in science, C at the end of that letter also sounds like S. 
I had no idea how to answer, and I thought you probably would. Thanks a lot. Keep up the fun podcast. The short answer is that in words like science and scent, SC is pronounced like an S phoneme, or a unit of sound. Some phonemes are represented by single letters, like the S sound in the word sat, and others are represented by combinations of letters, like the SH sound in the word shin. The long answer is that SC words have a tricky history in English. If they're old enough to have been around in Old English, they were probably pronounced like our modern SH words. Shin was spelled S-C-I-N, and a sheath for your sword would be spelled S-C-E-A-T-H. Every now and then, some of them kept their Cs, but also sound like SH words now, omniscience and prescience. Or sometimes they sound like ch, as in conscience and conscious. A few added an h after the sc and made it just sound like sk, schizophrenia, and schism. And a very few words make it sound just like s, science, rescind, descent, and the Massachusetts coastal town called situate. Every now and then, you get a group of words where you can see quite a bit of variation. Fish and Pisces both came from a root related to Latin piscis, which is spelled with an S-C in the middle, P-I-S-C-I-S. Pescatarian comes from the same root. That's the word for someone who eats fish but not other meat. And porpoise, which literally means pigfish, comes from porcus, the origin of pork, plus piscis, the origin of fish. If the SC word is new enough and wasn't around when Old English was spoken, then the C is there for a very different reason. After Old English had turned into Middle English, we got the word scent for something that smells, but it was spelled S-E-N-T, as in the related word sense, as in sense and sensibility. The C was added hundreds of years later, after Middle English had turned into Modern English, probably because it was influenced by words like descent and ascend, which both have Cs in the middle. So yes, the C of SC is what we usually call a silent letter in the case of words like science and scent. But there's more to the story once you look into the history of English words. A better answer is to say that the SC in science makes an S sound, like the phoneme S. But as you can see, this letter combination can vary depending on the history of each word, as do many letter combinations found in the English language. That segment was written by Kate Whitcomb. Kate is a linguist and teacher with degrees in psycholinguistics and cognitive neuroscience. You can find her online at thelaymanslinguist.com and on Twitter as laymanslinguist. Before we get to the Familect story today, I have another short listener story that I thought many of you might like. You may remember a few weeks ago on National Coffee Day, we talked about where we get the words for coffee and why we call a cup of coffee a cup of joe. Well, we got an interesting follow-up story from a listener named Colleen McNaughton, who posted this on the Grammar Girl Facebook page. She said, In Canada, it's common to order a double-double for takeout coffee, which means two cream, two sugar. She wanted to know if this is common anywhere else. 
Well, my frequent guest writer, Samantha Enslin, looked into it, and she believes the term is uniquely Canadian and is closely associated with the Canadian firm Tim Hortons. In fact, the chain sells a caffeine-filled snack bar called the Double Double. So if you're ever in Canada and want to sound like a local, try ordering your coffee as a Double Double. And finally, I have a family-like story about ribs. Hi, a friend of mine just shared your article about family linguistics, and I thought I would share one story. So for our immediate family, uh, we use ribs when something is spooky, you know, like scary, but in a non-threatening way. Um, It came from my son, Jacob, when he was younger, he ordered ribs for the first time at a restaurant and didn't touch them. When I asked something wrong, he said, I'm just afraid to eat them. I'm too afraid. He said that it was the bones that was scary. So from then on, we've always said ribs when something is spooky, scary in a funny way. But the weird thing, and I can't remember where it started from, but we always say it like this, ribs, just kind of like an, oh no, melodramatic for comedic effect. Thought you might enjoy that. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. I can see how ribs would be scary the first time you see them. (laughs) If you want to share your family dialect story, the story of a word your family and only your family uses, leave a voicemail at 83-321-4-GIRL and you might hear it on the show. And be sure to tell me the story because that's always the best part. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find me at the home of my podcast network, quickanddirtytips.com, where you can also find all the other great Quick and Dirty Tips podcast hosts, including Nutrition Diva, Money Girl, and The Get Fit Guy. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams. And that's all. Thanks for listening. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety. 
speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.